Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Zechariah chapter 14. This is the final and climactic oracle in the closing section of the book. We've given it the title, The Final Renewal. It deals with the last great battle and the decisive intervention of God on our behalf. It covers material we've seen before, but in greater detail and with further reaching implications than those we've already encountered. This is a classic example of recapitulation, which is a common feature in apocalyptic literature. The ESV expository commentary puts it this way, saying, This is not a battle subsequent to that of chapter 12, verses 2 to 9, but another perspective on the same battle. This time, looking at what it and the coming of God's kingdom entail for the entire cosmos. Closed quote. Now, we see this all the time in the Bible, particularly with important stories. Think of how Genesis 2 essentially zooms in and retells the creation story, focused this time on the creation and commissioning of the man and the woman. That's how recapitulation works. It takes an important story and tells it in various ways, layering on color, depth, and additional detail. This is an important story, so it deserves a multi-form treatment. This is the great intervention that brings about the long-awaited resolution to the human story. Brian Gregory says here, On that day, the prophets proclaimed the Lord would intervene with a jolt into history in order to fight for his people and to judge the nations. This cataclysmic intervention is precisely what is in view in the final chapter of Zechariah. Closed quote. I like that. Intervene with a jolt. That's exactly what this is. This is God taking the field in our darkest hour. If you're a Tolkien fan, this is Gandalf arriving on his white horse with all the riders of Rohan at first light on the morning of the fifth day. This is rescue, redemption, and renewal on a cosmic scale. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning in verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So here again, the depiction begins with the last great battle before the end. Kenneth Barker says helpfully, Ultimately, the scene depicted here is probably the same as the one in Revelation 16, 16 to 21, and Revelation 19, 19 to 21, and then he puts in brackets, Armageddon, closed quote. This story is told many times in the Bible. It is the battle of Gog and Magog, as depicted in Ezekiel 38 to 39. It is the battle of Armageddon, as depicted in the book of Revelation in chapters 16 and 19. Again, this is recapitulation. The Bible tells this story many times in slightly different ways to create a composite picture. The picture is of all the nations of the earth surrounding the people of God so as to destroy them. Now, what's interesting here is that verse 2 says that God himself 
has gathered them. And this reminds us, of course, of how God whistles for the nation of Assyria to come against his people in the 8th century BC. We read about that in Isaiah chapter 5. They are the scourge in his hand, the Bible says. So here we have the sense that this last battle is, in part, intended by God to purify and refine his people. Judgment begins with the household of God, and it is severe. The description begins with economic devastation, our property seized and divided in our midst. It proceeds to violence and destruction, almost too horrific to describe. The bride of Christ is despoiled. She is reduced, the picture seems to indicate, roughly by half. But then all of a sudden, when things are at their darkest, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Now, again, whenever we're looking at these depictions, we have to ask ourselves, how literally are we supposed to be interpreting these symbols? Are we to imagine that at some point in the future, a coalition of nations will literally and physically march up to Jerusalem and surround it and besiege it? Or are we to understand that just as that happened in the time of the Assyrians and in the time of the Babylonians and in the time of the Romans, so also in the future, the nations will surround the church so as to bring about her utter and total destruction. We have to be humble here, obviously, because, again, we're not reading the phone book here. We're looking at apocalyptic depictions. So we have to hold our interpretation somewhat loosely. But to my mind, I think the Tyndale Old Testament commentary points us in the right direction. It says this here, commenting on this passage that we've just read. It was ludicrous that all the nations should fight against one city. The material gain would be negligible. And in any case, the numbers involved would make it impossible. The only explanation is that this is an ideological conflict to remove a non-cooperative element that blocked the way to an international world order. Closed quote. That seems about right to me. It is hard to imagine what would motivate or justify a huge multinational military coalition against a single city. But it is much easier to imagine all the nations of the world uniting against the church, a church refusing to go along with the new world order, the new consensus, the new priorities and values. Such a church would have to be removed so that things could progress toward the desired end. That seems to be what is being depicted here. And of course, that aligns rather well with some of the pictures that we have in the book of Revelation. I'm thinking of the depiction of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. These two witnesses, which in the program episode on that chapter I identified as representing the church in a collective sense, have become an intolerable irritant to the rest of the global order, and the world decides that they must be put down. In John's vision, we're told that their dead body, it's singular actually, which again seems to suggest that we're talking about the church collectively here, their dead body lies in the streets for three days. And John says in Revelation 11, verses 10 to 12, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies watched them. Quote. 
So that certainly seems like a parallel depiction. The church is surrounded. The church is devastated. The church is despoiled. But then the Lord takes the field on her behalf. We see that in verse 3 here in Zechariah 14. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Again, think of that scene in the two towers when Gandalf and all the riders of Rohan crest the ridge to the east of the gate at Helm's Deep. Knowing Tolkien's biblical literacy, that may very well be intended as a reflection of this. Zechariah is depicting the great rescue at the end of the age. When all hope seems lost, the Lord takes the field on behalf of his people. His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was a mountain ridge rising high above the city and the temple on the east, and it effectively blocked the way of escape for the people of God. So what is being depicted here is, in a sense, another exodus. Remember when the people came to the Red Sea with the Egyptian army charging hard behind? This is that. But this time, instead of parting the sea, God splits a mountain. In fact, the same Hebrew word is used in verse 4 here for splitting the mountain that was used in Exodus 14 for splitting the sea. So this is an even greater deliverance than that. And once through it, once through this exodus, once through this parting, not of the sea, but of the mountain, we will come into our inheritance in the promised land. That's the idea. Now, again, the New Testament helps us to connect these anticipations with the correct event in the life and ministry of Jesus. You'll recall that in Acts chapter 1, the disciples watched Jesus ascend up into heaven, and an angel of the Lord came to speak to them, saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, closed quote. Did you catch that? They were standing on the Mount of Olives, and the angel said, This Jesus, whom you just watched go up, will come back down in the same way at some point in the future. So there can be no doubt we are talking about the second coming of Jesus here. Just before the end, the nations will surround the church so as to destroy and despoil her, but Jesus will come and all his holy ones with him. This is Armageddon and the second coming. Listen to Revelation 19, 14 to 16. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Close quote. So this is that. 
This is the last battle. This is the great climactic intervention. Joyce Baldwin says here, When the Lord God comes with his holy ones, his heavenly attendants, history will have reached its goal. Closed quote. We pick up the story at verse 6. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. So significant is this intervention that it actually disrupts the natural functioning of the cosmos. Brian Gregory says here, In God's promise to Noah, he had promised that the normal rhythms of seasons and days would not cease for as long as the earth endures, Genesis 8.22. To claim that the eschatological battle would produce a time of continuous daytime without frost was to declare that this vision is the long-awaited goal of history, closed quote. The Lord's entering into our realm in all his glory is disruptive, to say the least. It knocks the gears off the clock. It snaps the wires and blows the fuses. It creates a hinge between this age and the next. His coming marks the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. The prophet begins to speak about that in verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. You will recognize similarities between this depiction and the depiction of the new heavens and new earth by John at the end of the book of Revelation. He mentions the river flowing out of Jerusalem as well in Revelation 22. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The coming of the king cracks the world and reorders creation. A stream is opened that brings life and renewal to all it touches. We reach the summit of this depiction in verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. You can stick a pin in this text connecting it to Revelation 19.16, which says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus comes, all opposition will be finally and eternally cast down. And the holy city itself will be raised up. The prophet speaks about that now in verse 10. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So here, the picture shows the mountain city of Jerusalem raised up and the surrounding region leveled out. Of course, the earlier prophets had spoken about this as well. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, had said, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, 
and that we may walk in his paths, close quote. Now, again, we have to be asking how literally are we supposed to be understanding this? Are, are we talking about geographical and topographical realities here? Or is the prophet using these images to speak about something else? The imagery seems to go beyond mere topography. It talks, for example, about rivers flowing upwards, which is not normally what rivers do. J. Alec Montier, in his commentary on Isaiah 2, says, The natural impossibility of a stream flowing upwards is intentional. A supernatural magnetism is at work, closed quote. So Machir understands this as supernatural magnetism. This is exaltation and elevation. This is the answer to the prayer we've been praying for centuries. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is that. This is God as focal point and ultimate authority throughout the entire cosmos. Now again, this is not the phone book. This is an art gallery depicting the glory and majesty of last things. We're getting glimpses here of the end, and it defies description. We drop back now and zoom in, as it were, to the fine details of the Lord's climactic intervention. Look at verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Here again, the prophet is using colors lifted from historical canvases to depict the substance of future things. Using the word plague evokes memories of the ten plagues of the Exodus. But then the description of the plague reminds us of the Lord's intervention in the time of the Assyrians. In Isaiah 37, verse 36, it says, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Quote. So it will be like that, the prophet says. The Lord will come, plagues will fall, and every power of the enemy will be cast down. And the people of God will be set finally and gloriously free. The narrative continues in verse 13. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. So here we see the reversal of the situation described in verse 1. In verse 1, the possessions of the covenant community were being seized and distributed among the nations. But here, the possessions of the nations are being collected by the people of God. Again, as in the Exodus, there will be a great recompense. Reparations will be paid, and justice will be done. The line about Judah fighting also at Jerusalem should be read through the lens of chapter 12, verse 5. We talked about how the prophet is depicting certain people near but not in the covenant community who change sides in the early stages of the battle. They will be there at the end as well, fighting now on the side of God. Now, as to why the plague should fall on the animals as well, some suggest that it was because the animals represented the military power and potential means of escape 
for these surrounding armies. That may be. Thomas McComiskey says helpfully here, the obscure symbols serve only to show how complete the destruction of evil will be when the eschatological kingdom dawns, close quote. The world will be scrubbed clean, more thoroughly and definitively even than it was in the days of Noah's flood. Verse 16, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. So here we learn that there are converts from among the nations who set themselves in opposition to the people of God. Joyce Baldwin says here, the previous verse had not suggested that there would be any survivors from the plague, but this is figurative writing. Some of all nations are converted and so spared, close quote. And that makes sense if you think about it. The Bible says that at the end, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation belonging to the church of Jesus Christ. And yet here, we've been talking about all the nations of the world surrounding the church so as to destroy her. The reality behind these depictions must be that though the nations as a whole are hostile to the church, there are, of course, individuals within those nations that are not. Now, as the plague of God's judgment falls and those hostile entities melt away, as it were, the survivors come forth and join in the worship and celebration. The prophet says that they come to Jerusalem year after year to worship the king and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, why would that be? Why would this particular feast continue to be a feature of worship in the new heavens and the new earth? The commentators offer a variety of interpretive options here. And again, we're not reading the phone book, so a diversity of opinion is going to be expected and, and should be entertained. However, the position offered by Anthony Patterson seems plausible to me. He says, the festival is elsewhere associated with the temple and includes the foreigners sharing in the blessing of God, closed quote. That would certainly seem to fit here. The basic idea is that after the great cataclysm that brings purity to the covenant community and judgment upon her enemies, there will be a final and enduring coming together in unity as survivors are gathered in from the nations. The stick that was broken in the first coming of Messiah is here put together greater and grander than ever in his second coming. Praise the Lord. Verse 17. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Now, I don't think that the prophet is suggesting that even after the renewal of all things, there might actually be a family or tribe of people foolish enough to refuse to worship God and, and to attend the appointed festival. I, I think in a poetical and colorful way, the prophet is stressing the universality of worship and devotion in the age to come. Thomas McComiskey takes that approach in his commentary. He says here, again, a hypothetical illusion underscores the prophet's efforts to convey a sense of absoluteness, closed quote. Verse 20, and on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. 
and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no distinction between holy and common, because the Lord will be over all and in all. Everything there will be like the holiest things we can imagine here. The horse will be like the altar. The pots in the house will be like the pots in the temple, etc. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord on that day. Now, some of your Bible translations may have that as Canaanite, as in there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord on that day. The Hebrew word can be translated either way, so we have to consult the wider context. The context, I think, argues against translating that as Canaanite. After all, the emphasis here has been on ethnic inclusion. So a note of ethnic exclusion at the end of the book would be discordant. Rather, I think this is a way of depicting pure and undefiled worship in the renewed and restored creation. This is the same note that the book of Revelation ends on. John says, Blessed are those who wash the robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Close quote. That's Revelation 22, 14 to 15. This is how all the stories about that day come to an end. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So in all three of these depictions, we have this note of separation and removal, purification, the idea is that every enemy is destroyed, every blight is removed, every good thing is restored to its original design and function. This is the end. This is the future toward which our story has been moving. The prophet has taken us on quite a journey. He has looked into the future and seen the coming of the king, the rejection of that king, judgment upon the nation, trials and tribulations, conflict, cataclysm, and cleansing, and salvation restoration and renewal on the other side. He has seen the king returning to dwell amongst a transformed people in a world made holy to the Lord. He has seen the end, the new heavens and the new earth, our ultimate hope. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. 
There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 